Well, good evening, City Like You. I am back because they can't find anybody better. Uh, so they just keep asking me back because I'll come and do it for free. So uh, how are you all doing tonight? Good, 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 good. Um, before we get going, I want to give a quick shout out to my boy Clay for setting up all of these chairs. Not the Clay Wakefield that was here, but the Clay, I believe he's sitting right back there. Can we all just give him a round of applause? Another brother that I see setting up chairs pretty frequently is my boy Tim, and I think he's right back there. Let's give him a... And they do such a lovely job, but apparently, like, they put some, like, smelly stuff or something on this front row of chairs because they are always vacant. There's always the people right behind it. Not that I'm calling you all out, but just, like, if you need a better view, there are plenty of seats right up here. But uh, let's get into it. Uh, I'm going to pray real quick. Father, um, tonight we want to humbly submit to your word. We have a, a, a tough passage tonight that, uh, that has been used for a lot of harm in the past, but would you, what, would you use what has been used for harm, would you, what has been used for evil, would you redeem it tonight in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls and use it for something good in the way that only you know how to do? Um, Father, would you be speaking through me? Would you be here? And would you speak to the hearts of everybody in here tonight, including myself? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I grew up with two brothers. Uh, I have an older brother named Mike, who is about two and a half years older than I am. And I have a younger brother named Nathan, uh, who's about two and a half years younger than I am. Uh, some of you, if you go to UNO, you might have seen Nate. He looks like me, but with less hair, and he's about that big. He's got a beard, but maybe not. Uh, but anyways, uh, we are the best of friends. Um, we spend actually quite a bit of time together. Um, we... Uh, so my wife and I just got married, and she's actually here. Can we get... Ah, there she is. Yeah. See, she's real. She is real. <laughs> uh, but anyways, for one of our gifts, we got a, we got a smoker, and she, she always jokes. She's like, no, you and your brother got a smoker as a gift for our wedding, and she's not wrong. Um, but uh, my little brother and I, we've been uh, getting into smoking meat, and a couple weeks ago, we got a 10-pound brisket. And we put on some, like, homemade rub, smoked it for, like, 12 hours, ate it for the Super Bowl. It was so good. Like, if you don't have a smoker, you need to go get one. Uh, And then this last week, we uh, smoked a turkey for, like, nine hours. It was so good. And I am now convinced that turkey is good all year round and not just for Thanksgiving. Uh, It was so good. But anyways, I spent a lot of time with my brothers. And and growing up, we lived in in a sports family. We lived and breathed sports. And during the summers, we would have all the neighborhood kids over, and we'd be playing basketball, we'd be uh, playing tag, and we'd be playing wiffle ball, and we'd be playing wiffle ball until the wee hour, like it's, uh, until the streetlights came on when everybody had to go home. Back before we had cell phones where we knew the time, like we just looked up, and if the streetlights were on, we, we had to go home. But uh, anyways, at that time, uh, during the summers here in the Midwest, as you know, it's a magical time because all the fireflies come out, right? They come out in like the thousands. And, and normal kids would like go out and trap them in mason jars and put rubber bands around the top and put wax paper on there, poke holes, and like keep them as pets. Um, my brothers and I would go out with our wiffle ball bats and just smack them out of the air. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, until, we would do that until we had lightsabers. Because, you know, like if you smack them, like they leave the bioluminescence on the bat. And so then we'd have lightsabers and we'd play Star Wars. And uh, we weren't normal kids. But uh, anyways, when you're training to be a Jedi with lightsabers made out of the carcasses of fireflies and wiffle ball bats, your fellow Jedis, in this case my brothers, uh, were my training partners. And uh, they may not have been real lightsabers, but they were real wiffle ball bats. And when you got a swing like Babe Ruth, as I do, and you hit your fellow Jedi in the head, it hurt. And so anyways, I would whop my little brother over the head with this thing, and he would cry and groan and uh, tell my parents what I did, and then I would like try and find any place to hide. I would try and find any place to find refuge, because there was some wrath coming my way. Uh, but anyways, two weeks ago, I preached, and we looked at how the Israelites came out of Egypt being led by God, and they were pursuing God's rest. We had the Israelites that were led by a pillar of fire, and a pillar of smoke all through the wilderness. But through their unbelief and their disobedience, they were not able to enter into God's rest. And then the next generation of Israelites went into the promised land with Joshua as their leader. And they were seeking a place to call their home. They were seeking a place of refuge, right? And then last week, our very own Josh Roth killed it, preaching about this aspect of a high priest. We have a high priest that came from heaven to earth so that we can go from earth to heaven. And to sum up the past two weeks, the way we enter into God's rest is through the perfect high priest who is Jesus. Jesus is the greater rest, as our series is. And Jesus is the greater high priest, and this week we're going to find out what else Jesus is greater than. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be covering quite a bit. Hebrews 5.11 through uh, chapter 6, verse 20. And our passage tonight begins like this. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Now, let me just stop, because as a young preacher, like, you get some passages that are, like, pretty easy to preach, like, uh, just some that are really easy to grab onto. The book of Hebrews is likely a sermon that was preached and recorded, and if the Spirit-filled, ordained preacher, who is the mouthpiece of God, opens up with, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain your hopes and dreams of producing a, a, a sermon on par with like David Platt or Billy Graham quickly, quickly dim like the bioluminescence on our lightsabers grown up. Um, that being said, I have spent a ton of time in this passage and it is full of good news. So let's, uh, let's dig in and, and see what the Lord will speak to us. But as a word of caution for tonight, our text has some pretty heavy words in it and some words that may be unfamiliar to a lot of us. Um, and, and these words can carry some pretty big emotional weight for, for some people because it strikes very close to home. Uh, some of your Bibles might have this word apostasy as a section heading uh, in this uh, chunk of Scripture. And apostasy simply means leaving the faith. It's a word that is used to describe a person who has fallen away from Christ. And this text tonight is a bit of scripture that is frequently misused and pulled out of context to prove points. And tonight we're not going to 
we're not going to dive into the detail of every single word and, and, and try and pull out what we want from this text. Instead, we're going to approach this text from 30,000 feet, and we're going to try and gain a perspective of how this text was written to its original audience. And tonight, I believe that our text yields to us three points. The first point is to get in. The second point is to hold on. And the third point is to take refuge. So get in, hold on, take refuge. So that's what I want to invite you to do. Get in your Bibles, hold on, and take refuge. We'll get through it tonight. So let's start. Pick it up in verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The author of Hebrews begins this new point that he's about to make with some pretty strong language. He said it is going to be hard to explain because they have become dull of hearing. Now, being dull of hearing doesn't mean that they had a hearing disorder. It means that the original language uses a word that could also be translated as sluggish or or lazy of hearing. So these Hebrew Christians had been hearing all of these fundamental aspects of Christianity but they didn't put them into practice. It was as if they heard it all intellectually, but it didn't move them to do anything about the knowledge that they had. And and I can totally relate to that. I've taken college-level classes on health and nutrition. I was a college athlete. My friends are college athletes. I married a college athlete who's an occupational therapist. I know how to take care of my body. And I'm surrounded by people who know how to take care of my body. But I still eat raisin canes and consider moving from the couch to the refrigerator exercise for the day. I will still fight that it is exercise. But I've been, been informed that you're supposed to do more. But anyway, so I can relate. I can relate to these Hebrew Christians, right? They've been taught about the fundamental aspects of Christianity, but did not connect the dots that they were supposed to be changed by them. So sarcastically, the author of Hebrews is saying that they need milk because they are unskilled in the word of righteousness, since they are children. And this imagery is actually really, really offensive. Uh, It may not be offensive to us, but in, in their context, in their world, it was really offensive. The imagery being used with the milk and the children is pretty much like saying, even though you're an adult, you keep trying to breastfeed when you should be eating a steak. So that's like kind of harsh imagery. Like, and that's a, that, is, that is not as neat as like, oh, you're a child and you need milk. No, it's really offensive. So point one is get in. And this is what I mean. The author of Hebrews is addressing 
Christians. The imagery he uses, though it is suggestive and and maybe a little harsh, it's important to to note. There's a family wording of of, of children, of um, raising up, and then there's this aspect of, of foundation, right? So get in the family if you aren't in the family. The basic principles are repent and turn to God in faith, understand that you are in the family, and if you understand that, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Know that someday there is judgment and a physical resurrection of the body. And the basic principles are things that are worthy of our attention, but that's not what the author is getting at. He's trying to get them to move beyond the elementary practices of Christ. And tonight, I want want us to do the same. I want us to not get focused in on those details. I want us to step back and go, okay, what, what is he trying to say here? So there's the family aspect. There's the family structure. And then there's this talk about a foundation. Now, you lay a foundation, right? Has anybody worked in construction? Yes or no? Okay, got some guys. So you lay a foundation, right? But you lay a foundation for something that you are going to dwell within or behind. Like you lay the foundation of a wall to be behind the wall, right? Like you lay a foundation of your house to then build your house on top of the foundation. And what the author of Hebrews here is saying is that laying down your foundation, like being in the family and remaining a child is like laying a foundation without building on top of it. You don't build your foundation over here and then build the rest of your house over here. Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying right here. He's saying, you you have been brought into the family as children, but you remained children. And that makes no sense. Just like putting a foundation here and then building the rest of your house over here makes no sense. But before you start thinking that I'm telling you to try harder and do better, look at chapter 6, verse 3. This we will do if God permits. So nothing happens apart from the sovereign hand of God. Psalm 115, 3. Anybody? Yell that a little louder. I meet up with those guys, and that's like my all-time favorite verse. The Lord resides in heaven and does all that he pleases. And so if anything happens, it is because the Lord, it pleases the Lord. So if you are to get into the family, if you are to be within the foundation, like it's because the Lord has called you to be in that. All right, so point one is get in. Tracking with me? Yep, okay. All right, point two is to hold on. And this is, this is where it gets a little heavy. Picking up in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain and often, that often falls on it and produces a crop is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is some heavy stuff right here. And if we are not careful... We can input our preconceived notions of theology and read this text differently. And what I mean by that is, is this. like This passage right here has been used in a number of different ways to either prove or disprove aspects of salvation. And if we read this text and input the question of, can you lose your salvation into this text, we yield the answer of yes. However, reading other passages like John 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Well, there it sounds like you can't ever lose your salvation. And so that seems to be an inconsistency within Scripture. But then we go back to Hebrews chapter, in chapter 6, in verse 18, it says, It is impossible for God to lie. So then what is it? Can you lose your salvation or can you not lose your salvation? And there's a seeming, it, it seemingly disconnects at this point within this passage. So what do we do as, as students, as, as, as studiers of the word of God? What do we do with that, right? Well, we submit to scripture and we be good students of the word and look at the context around the passage. If we know that God's word cannot lie, but yet here we see two different aspects of salvation, like one, you can lose it, but then you can't. Well, his, his word can't lie, and so, so what the heck is going on? And I think if we look at the context of where we find this passage, it'll help us. When we observe what this text is, what this little chunk is, it's a warning, right? Like, don't fall away. Do not fall away. It's a warning. And it's a warning to whom? It is a warning to Christians, and specifically Christians that converted from Judaism. And at this time, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the, the ethnic Jewish people were severely persecuted by the Roman government. And they were kicked out of Jerusalem. And then amongst the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people, you have the Jewish Christians who are being persecuted by not only the Roman government, but also their own people. And so you have these Jewish Christians that are being written to. And so this is a warning that is written to them. And then this warning comes right after a rebuke where the author calls out these Christians for being immature followers of Christ when they should be mature or more mature followers of Christ. So with that in mind... The author then warns these Jewish Christians of the ramifications of falling away, telling them that it is impossible to be, repent, to be restored to repentance. And then there's that bit about rain falling on the land and it producing good things and thorns and thistles. But in the context of everything going on around this passage, this warning is given to the Jewish Christian, and it's kind of like this. If you have been brought into the family... 
if you have laid the foundations of Christ and you fall away, you won't find salvation anywhere else. These Jewish Christians were not growing in the Christian faith, and due to their persecutions, they were assimilating back into the traditional Judaism of the people around them. And that was essentially like rejecting the fundamental Christian doctrines and, and rejecting Christ and his sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, don't do that. Don't fall away from Christ. Don't reject Christ when you know it's true. But the fact of the matter is, there were people who did. And there are people who still do today. So what are you and me supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with a passage like this? And this is point two. Hang on. That's what we're supposed to do. These Jewish Christians were under severe persecution from all sides of their lives. The government hated them. Their own people hated them. And the temptation to fall away was real. It would have been easier for them. But notice what the author says in verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author tells them that even though the whole world is trying to pull you away, hold on, because your reward is not here on this earth, but it is in heaven. And the author is telling them that the dangers of falling away pale in comparison to the reward of holding on. Through the patient and steadfast faith, like the faithful ones in the past, hold on to the hope that is at the end. And what is that hope? It says it's an inheritance. So remember, two weeks ago, we talked about the Israelites coming out of Egypt into the wilderness and then entering into the promised land. They were to inherit the land that God promised them many, many years ago. But God's promise was not only a physical, geographical piece of land, was it? God's promise was a refuge, a place where there would be no more enemies and no more slavery. It was a promise, his, God's promise was a refuge where death would reign no more where famine would not exist anymore. God's promise was a refuge where there is eternal life. Eternal life. And see, like you, what is that refuge? It's Jesus. It's his son, Jesus. That's what we are to hold on to. So point one was to get in. Get into the family. Get into the foundation. Just get into the building. Get into the refuge. Point two is hold on. The whole world is going to try and drag you away, but hold on to Christ. Hold on to our refuge. And point three is to take refuge. So let's pick it up. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtains where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author just got done talking about holding on to Christ. And it starts talking about this, this promise and this oath, Right? that he made to Abraham. Then Abraham patiently waiting, which is Abraham having faith. Then we have some more family imagery being used with the word heirs, heirs of the promise. Then we have two unchangeable things, which are the character of God and the promises of God. And then we have some more imagery of a refuge. And to fully understand this passage, what everything is going on, what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at, the imagery of a refuge is really, really important. And so I want you all to open up your Bibles to, number, to the book of Numbers, chapter 35. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. Probably haven't spent a whole lot of time in the book of Numbers because it's just a lot of numbers. So Numbers 35, open up with me. Thank you. Thank you. So before the Israelites went into the promised land, so they came out of Egypt, right, wandered around the desert, whole generation of them died, another one raised up, and before they entered into the promised land, Abraham, or, uh, Moses and Joshua were told by God to divvy up the promised land amongst all of the, tri- all of the tribes, amongst the 12 tribes, okay? One of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, where they were the uh, the, the the tribe of priests, they didn't actually get a section of land. Instead, they got cities throughout the land. And these cities, think of them kind of like churches. Okay? They, they were supposed to be supported by the rest of the people. And amongst those cities, there were supposed to be six uh, cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge were for people who had committed a crime. They could flee to these cities of refuge and avoid the punishment that was behind them. But not every criminal could get into the city of refuge. It had to, they had to like accidentally be a criminal. And, and so what that means is like, imagine, imagine you were driving down the road, your tire pops off, and you lose control of your car, and you crash into the sidewalk and kill people. Like you didn't mean to kill them but they're still dead and you just like accidentally did it. It's pretty morbid, but honestly, if you read Numbers 35, that's the, like, if we're to roll back the clock like 4,000 years, that's what it was. Um, But you didn't mean to kill those people. But under the Old Testament law, the punishment for their death was your death. So these refuge cities were for people like that. It was a means of grace. It was a, if a person accidentally committed a crime, they could flee to this city of refuge and they would be protected there. 
But if they left that city of refuge, then they were to be killed. They were, they were to receive the fullness of the punishment due to them. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Well, these cities of refuge were for people who accidentally sinned. See, like you, you and I, we may have accidentally sinned like maybe twice or something, but most of the time we know exactly what we're doing when we sin. So these cities of refuge would not be for us. Because we are guilty. But because of Christ, those who have accepted him, those who have been brought into the family, those who dwell within the foundations of Christ, get to enter into the city of refuge. And just like Josh preached last week, we get to enter into the city of refuge because we have a high priest who sacrificed himself on our behalf. Yeah? Follow me, follow me. And as our representative, we gained access. Now check this out. Uh, read with me Numbers 35, picking up in verse 28. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. So if we've gained access to the refuge, if we have gained access into the family of God, if we get in right, to the city of refuge, if we don't fall away or leave the city of refuge, if we hold on to Christ, we get to take possession of our land. Another word for take in this, in this context is inherit. We get to inherit the promise. We become heirs of the promise that was promised to Abraham. So let's recap, because I don't want you to miss this. Our text tonight, 511 through 620, starts off with a rebuke to these Jewish Christians for not growing, for not maturing in Christ. They have laid the foundations of Christ which is the city of refuge, but they have not built upon it, okay? Then we have a warning about leaving this refuge and a plea for them to stay within this city of refuge, right? And if they left the refuge, they can't come back in to the city of refuge. Finally, if they stay in the city of refuge then they will inherit the promise when? When the high priest dies. But check this out. The city of refuge was only for those who were accidentally guilty. In Christ, we who are fully guilty get access to this city through his righteousness because he was our high priest. He was our representative, right? Furthermore, we get access, and we are supposed to remain in the city until the high priest died and Jesus died on the cross for us. So now we get access to the promised inheritance, which is, if you remember, it's not a chunk of geographical land, but it is the presence of God. You tracking with me? 
okay? So, not only is our refuge in Christ, but through his death, as our high priest, we are brought into the presence of God, which is our refuge. And in the old city of refuge, even after the high priest died, and that person just left the city of refuge and went to their their new place, their new inheritance, their sin still needed to be dealt with. But because Jesus is our greater city of refuge, and Jesus is our greater high priest, our sin is removed from us, and we get to inherit our promise because we have a greater city of refuge. We don't need more sacrifices like they did in the old times. We don't have to assimilate back into culture. We don't have to assimilate back into traditional Judaism to pay for our sins because we have a high priest in the line of, or in the order of Melchizedek, who is perfect, who paid for it once and for all. The only thing we need, say like you, is Christ. Can I get an amen on that one? Thank you, thank you. So city like you, I implore you, if you are not in the family of God, if you are not in the refuge, I implore you to get into the family, to get into the refuge, lay the foundations. And it is only through faith. And if you are in the refuge, if you are in the family of God, then build on your foundations. Mature in Christ. And if you are in, hang on. You will not find salvation anywhere else. And if you are hanging on to Christ, know that according to the promises of God, that will never change. According to his character, according to his son, who is our high priest, you will take refuge. You are an heir to the promise. You will be with God, holy and blameless, because of our greater refuge. Father, what beautiful news. I pray tonight that we would take refuge in you, that we would build our foundations on you, that we would mature in your son, and that we would recognize the fact that if we are in you, we have no need to further flee for refuge because we have a perfect refuge in your son. Um, I, I pray for, for the hearts tonight in this room uh, who, who are not in the family, who are not in the refuge. God, would you invite them in because nothing happens apart from your sovereign hand. So would you invite them into the family? Um, would you call somebody's heart tonight? Uh, and, and for those who, who are already in the family but are, are spiritual children, um, God, would you help them mature because nothing happens apart from your hand? And would you help them hold on until we get to take our inheritance, until we get to take our refuge? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.